All right, hey everyone, this is Maddie Kay, and this is The Working Experience. The Working Experience. Time, weather, and Route 93 North is almost at a standstill. It's a rough one out there this morning, snow and sleet. There is no service on the... Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Uh, yeah, folks, we're going to be a few minutes. We have train traffic ahead of us. We should be moving shortly. Y'all need that report ASAP. Where are we on that presentation? And HR wants to see you. Did you return that email yet? We have a team meeting at 10. To stay late, Bob. Teamwork makes the dream work. <laughs> They're moving in a different direction. And after the meeting, we'll have a breakout session. Who ate my Where are my hot pockets? This microwave is disgusting. Oh, God, what's that? He was no. living his toenails at his desk. I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. Hey everybody, it's Maddie Kay. Uh, this is another edition of The Working Experience. It is May 13th, and I am on Skype with a friend of my brother's over in the UK. So if you want to introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Daniel, and I'm a journalist. All right, and um, like I said, Daniel knows my brother, I think, through uh, a friend. I've actually spoken to Erin uh, a couple of times. She was going to... We're still trying to sort of work out. She was going to help us kind of publicize the podcast and whatnot because I, yeah, I she's good at that kind of thing yeah i think that's kind of what she does and i think she's starting her own company if i'm not mistaken or she had her own company uh, i think she's kind of uh she's kind of uh, changed direction a little bit and i think her and her friend are about to start something else up okay right on right on um so uh we were just going to talk today about calling in sick as our uh maybe 10 listeners know i uh i look for these um these lists that what kind of fascinates me is that these lists are kind of like self-help books like if you go to barnes and noble or i don't do you have an equivalent of barnes and noble over there uh yeah we got waterstones okay so like there's huge sections of self-help books i've always liked the some comedian pointed out that if self-help books worked there would be one so, uh, you know, everybody's always, there always seems to be trends in self-help, how to be successful, top 10 habits of successful people, and just list after list pours out. I think it kind of, I think human beings kind of like lists. They sort of like orderly things, like clear-cut directions. I don't know. It's, it seems to I appeal think, to people. Men like lists, don't they? I think we're all a little bit on the, on the spectrum, aren't we? Well, as uh, Daniel and I were talking, uh, he and my brother are both huge. Well, my brother is a huge heavy metal fan. He definitely has lists in his head of, if you've ever seen his music collection, is very well categorized and organized. Yeah. Are you that way? Is that you? Uh, well, not so much. I mean, they wouldn't be um, alphabetized or anything like that. I'm a little bit more haphazard when it comes to things like that. But I do like order and structure. Right. My home, my home is my home is very tidy. Yes. Uh, and there's kind of not a not a cushion out of place, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. So you know, I think I think it's all it's, it's very slight OCD, which sort of feeds into the uh, the spectrum, the uh, the autistic or the Asperger's spectrum, really. Yeah. And I think I think men are more I think men are more kind of prone to that than women are. I think. Did you? This puts me in mind of that book, High Fidelity, um, by. Oh, he's a British author. Yeah, uh, Nick Hornsby. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I saw the film. I, did, I saw the film. I didn't read the book. Yeah, kind of the same. Th I liked the the book a lot better than the movie, but that that book is rife with lists, and he, I think, kind of 
is uh, exploring that idea of men listed like he's always listing his top five movies his top 10 albums genre whatever so yeah yeah i mean i'm I'm the kind of guy that if people ask me my what's your top five film what's your favorite film i find it so hard to say there's an absolute favorite you know what i mean it's yes i think it's very it's a very kind of organic thing that kind of changes over the years and it's kind of you know it revolves i can never say you know definitely that a certain film is my favorite because then you know a year later something else i'm maybe more into that do you know what i mean well i actually a friend of mine and i were just emailing back and forth about he said he'd rewatched napoleon dynamite uh, and it just you know it doesn't really hold up like it was great when it was out and i i probably watched it 10 times but you know like clerks Clerks yeah. was, uh, you know, what was that, 25 years ago now? And, I mean, it was yeah. amazing when it came out, but I can't watch it again because, you know. No, some are very of their time, aren't they? And some yeah. are kind of built to last and uh, timeless. Yes. Know, and, I, and those two examples you gave there, and I'm a huge film buff as well, by the way. Oh. You know, um, Napoleon, Dynamite, and, and Clerks, you know, they're just very much of their time. I think with Clerks, for example, I don't think we'd seen anything that, that kind of thing in the cinema before then right and you know after a while it was i think people realized it wasn't that interesting you know yeah it it was interesting because it was independent and the story behind it was very interesting and the characters were it was it was just so new and now it's like you know it's as you say it was of its time and whereas like apocalypse now you could watch i mean i can watch that whenever Exactly. I mean, you know, I'm, um, you know, some fa- favorite films of mine are With Nail and I, Clockwork, Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, even like I'm a huge sci-fi geek, so Empire Strikes Back is, is always up there, you know. I yeah. love um, British crime and gangster films. Sexy Beast is another one that's up there for me. Oh, that's a great, yeah, yeah. That's a uh, great one. Amelie, um, the, the French uh, sort of fantasy film from just the turn of uh, the 20, 20th century. That's another great one. Yeah. Um, again, I, I could never tell you which one I prefer to the other. They're all kind of up there for me, you know? The Usual Suspects is one of those movies that really I, I can watch it whenever. I mean, to me, it's nearly a perfect movie. It's it's so airtight in the, the script. And Miller's Crossing. I yeah. can watch a lot of Coen Brothers movies, too. Yeah. I, I love them. Mm. Yeah. So uh... on a similar tack, and we may be going on a real tangent here, but obviously, you know, uh, the Usual Suspects, Kevin Spacey film, um, possibly the first, the first film that really put him on the map. Yeah. And uh, you say that's one of your your all time favorite films, but now with all that's come out about Kevin Spacey, obviously his career's over now. But has it kind of tainted that film for you? No, I not not really at all. I know we have this debate. Uh, well, in this country, I'm sure, and you're in the UK as well, about people like Roman Polanski. And uh, I guess it's a little different with an actor because you are looking at the person. But that was so long ago. It was like 1990-something, I want to say. I think I was either in college or I just graduated. So, no, not really. I mean, the story about him was so kind of... Con- at least what I heard about it was very convoluted that I never really understood exactly. I mean, I know he acted inappropriately and it, it was just such a strange situation, I guess that I, it yeah, wasn't as strange. He didn't even really deny it. He just sort of said, well, I can't remember it. 
Yeah. yeah. It was clumsy way sort of chose that moment to come out, didn't he? Which yeah. upset the LGBT community very much, you know. And But then also at the same time, there are all these other things that other people sort of came out and said, well, actually, this is what happened with me and Kevin Spacey as well. So I don't know. I mean, I'm just... I was just putting it out there because you said um, about the usual suspects and I was quite interested to hear what you, you had to say. Yeah, it, it definitely, uh, I mean, if I watched that movie, like, no, I wouldn't be thinking about that. If I was watching uh, that show where that he got kicked off of, essentially. House of Cards. Yeah. Uh, you know, I liked that show to a degree. Um, I guess, you know, it's fun. I used to work in the film industry for about five years and uh, a woman I knew worked with somebody she was like a pa and she was telling me these stories about kevin spacey and i was like no way like i thought she was kind of a gossip and whatnot but you know 20 years later or however 15 years later i i would have to say oh okay well <laughs> i guess you were you were not just spinning yarns that uh yeah, you know i mean you may, you may or may not know but in in this country you know, a few, well, going back a few years now, um, around about 2011, 2012, uh, a lot of this kind of thing, not so much the Me Too thing, but uh, more, uh, you know, um, with, with regard to children's presenters and TV presenters, a lot of things came out about them. And there's a really famous one in the UK called Jimmy Savile, who, um, you know, for, for years and years had been very famous, had been on primetime television, presented children's shows, and he'd recently died. Um, at a very, very old age. He'd also been a charity fundraiser, all this kind of thing, you know, seemingly very benevolent person. Um, but then it all came out that that he'd um, he'd he'd uh, attacked and abused a lot of people, and um, male and female, you know, children and adults. And wow! Like hundreds and hundreds of cases all came out, and th- this kind of opened the floodgates. A little bit like Me Too in America. Yeah. For a lot of other TV presenters and. Uh, personalities and celebrities in this country so it's very similar it's very interesting how you know what's happened in in america in the last six months or so is kind of uh, paralleling what happened in the uk maybe six years ago yeah and a case like harvey weinstein is very very straightforward i mean he abused his position and he you know he was being investigated by the new york police department well before this came out they they wired up a, a woman who was working there and you, you could hear the exchange and it was really disturbing and yeah. harvey weinstein isn't somebody like I ever really thought much about because he's you know he's not an actor he's not on screen um and then there are other cases that have come out that have stirred a little more controversy as to like okay this is not as straightforward as harvey weinstein you know never to belittle anybody who has, uh, who says something, you know, but some of the other, ca- I would say some cases, and I can't speak to Kevin Spacey's because I haven't really looked into it much. Actually, frankly, I got sort of disgusted hearing about the whole thing. And I was like, good yeah. Lord, <laughs> I don't want to hear any more about this, but you do have to hear about it. Um, some cases are, I guess, a little more nuanced, you know, as I guess all I could really say. So it is interesting, though, with someone like Roman Polanski, he was recently kicked out of, uh, I guess, the Academy of Arts and Sciences or or the Oscar Academy Award organization. Uh, he was kicked out along with someone else, was just recently booted out as well for the exact same things. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
And yeah, but the thing with Polanski as well, I mean, he's been a fugitive all these years, but yeah. he's actually been making films and, you know, I mean, he's not been allowed into America, but he's managed to get around that by making films in Europe and what have you. And, you know, all these A-listers have still wanted to work with him. And yeah. he's been, and he's won Oscars, I think he won Oscars for, yeah. Yeah. What, what was the one he won the Oscar for not so long ago? Yeah, um, maybe two, three years ago. So there's a kind of hypocrisy there, really. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, some people are like, well, you can separate the artist from the work. And other people say, hey, if you are supporting this guy in any way, you're allowing this to go on, which certainly I can see. His case was uh, a little more of an aberration because he was mixed up with the Charles Manson thing. His wife had been murdered by Manson. And, uh, you know, how that led to him uh, attacking a 14-year-old girl, I don't really know what the rationale was. Uh but I I don't think there had been stories about him being like a predator before that. Again, not to excuse what he did, uh, but that that was, I guess, a little more of a blip on the radar. You know, like everybody knows about it, too. It wasn't like it, it was undercover and all that. I mean, he was tried and he fled and and all of that. So he's not exactly Harvey Weinstein, but I can certainly see people's point about being like, hey, you know. Nobody wants to be linked with anything involving stuff like that. You know, you just it's just bad business. Um, even if people have no moral qualms about it, like, I think all of these, a lot of this stuff goes on in the financial industry. I'm sure it goes on in just about every industry where you have high-powered people, mostly men, and you have women who are vulnerable. Like, we talked about one with, um, in this country, with venture capitalists, and all the problems that were arising from, they have these social events where you have a guy who's worth several billion dollars and you have a young you know, woman who's an entrepreneur and she wants him to invest in her business. And they have these events at night with alcohol and it's led to a lot of problems. And I'm, from my perspective, I'm like, of course it's led to problems. Like, that's a terrible business model. Uh but I don't know how else you, you know, I don't really know much about that world. So, hmm. you know, it's, um, uh, it's just fraught with peril, I guess, is what yeah. I would say. Yeah. You know, fortunately in my industry, there was really none of that. I mean, I don't, well, I shouldn't say none. I don't know about it. I've never encountered it in education. You know, I did work in the film industry for a bit, but I was a grip. I was a PA. I was never in the production end of it. So I've always wanted to know what a grip does. A grip, um, very broadly, is responsible for safety. Uh, so let's say a light needs to go up into the ceiling. So the grips would rig a point for the electricians to safely put up that light. And then the grips would have to put safety cables on it and things like that. Um, and then grips deal anything with the camera. If the camera has to be mounted... Uh, like I worked on Law and Order for a bit and the key grip had to mount the camera to the side of the truck. And this is like a $150,000 piece of equipment. So he really has to know his business in doing that. Uh, and then something that's a little less straightforward is like if, if a light goes up and they want to change the quality of it, then the grips would put a piece of gel in front of it, a frame in front of it, or they shape the light. They, they put like what's, what are called siders on it. Um, there's all these like uh, frames that grips use. So they'll be like, okay, we need a piece of orange in front of that to warm up the light. Uh, 
grips would use a C stand or some other kind of stand and put that up. Um, the ball trades, really. Say again. A jack of all trades, really. Uh, it, it's a pretty varied position. I mean, you do have to know a lot. Like, there's also dolly. The, the camera goes on the dolly. The grips lay the yeah. track. Someone pushes the dolly. Um, electricians deal with, like, putting up lights, powering the lights, uh, making sure anything electrical is running. They run the generators, stuff like that. So, yeah. Another one of those, uh, another one of those names that comes up on the credits I was always curious about was the Best Boy. Best Boy, you have a Best Boy Grip or a Best Boy Electric, and that person on a on a big big job, um, like my friend Mike is a Best Boy on Gotham right now that that New York television show. So he uh, he does hiring, he deals with timesheets, he orders equipment, he makes sure like, okay, we need five guys tomorrow. He starts calling around, getting the guys. So that's kind of an administrative position, I guess you would say. Interesting. Yeah. I've always liked uh, the film industry because there's so many different jobs. And it's funny how on big jobs, it's very compartmentalized. Like every group, every department has its its things it does and it does nothing else. And there's no cross-pollinating. And it keeps everything very well organized and it... It runs like a well-oiled machine. It's it's very impressive, very impressive. Well, it, it's just on a you know similar note. Um, I recently went to the cinema to see the new Marvel film, um, Avengers: Infinity War. Me and my me and my girlfriend went to see it, and we, we wanted to stay through the the credits, the end credits, because there was going to be a little scene at the end, which they always do. Um, and you know you couldn't get a much bigger film than Infinity War, really. And so we sat through the credits. It went on for about ten minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. These hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of uh, people's names and their different jobs, and you know all the rest of it. And you just think, how on earth do does that amount of people? How do they how do they get corralled? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's just so, such a huge amount of people. I believe Mel Gibson holds the record, the world record for Braveheart for feeding the most amount of people at one given time on a film set because they had so many extras and so much crew. And that's something that people don't think about is like, you got to feed all those people. You have to get them breakfast, lunch. And if you go over 12 hours, you have to get them a third meal. And that's what producers do. That's, you know, and, and all of their underlings or just uh, all those different departments, and, yeah. you know, those departments within those departments and all those amount of people. It's just fascinating to think that, you know, somehow that's all being organized, you know, and, um, and it's all running like a well-oiled machine. Of course, there's plenty of films where that doesn't happen or falls apart. But do you know what I mean? Well, yeah. And it, it it's I think it's the compartmentalization that is so, uh, so necessary to it running. Like when I showed up on a film set. I found the grip truck. I had my tools on, even if I didn't know anybody. And that would happen sometimes. I would just get a call from someone and, can you be here at 6 a.m.? And I would show up and <clears throat> I'd say, where's the grip truck? And you go over there and, and you already know what to do. You already know what stuff to start pulling out. And uh, everybody speaks the same language. And you just, you got to know the names, you know, the equipment. And if someone says, you know, okay, we're going to be shooting outside then you kind of know in your head as you get experience, okay, this is what we need to be pulling out. And one time when I was working on a TV show, I think it was Law & Order, and I was a PA, I grabbed these director's chairs to bring them over the truck, and this guy was on top of me in about two seconds. 
And he was like, put those down. Don't touch those. Because those are props department. So I was not supposed to be... T I thought I was helping. And I was not. I was creating chaos because that's his job to know where those chairs are and to put them in the truck in the place they go. So it was a valuable lesson for me to be like, you just got to kind of do your job and not get in anybody else's business. Yeah, I mean, back in the day in, um, in the UK, there's many stories about similar similar situations like that on film sets where if you did something like that, the union would come and shut it down until, and they'd have to have a big meeting about it because somebody was doing the work that somebody else was supposed to do. Yeah, they're very specific about that. Um, it, it, Grips and Electrics were Local 52. I never joined the union, but I was able to sort of day play when they needed people to work. And uh, yeah, you are not supposed to be stepping outside of your of your department. And again, it creates chaos. Like if I move those chairs to the wrong place, now they don't know where the chairs are. And that that's a big problem. Like if somebody picks up a piece of my equipment and and they put it someplace else, now we don't know where it is. And it's like, it, you know, wastes time and makes everybody look bad. So um, yeah, on, on lower budget stuff, certainly more people kind of pitch in to help out here and there, non-union stuff, which I worked a lot of those too. Um, some people prefer that, you know, some people prefer the union thing, uh, union, you know, you're kind of more of a cog in a wheel, but it's got to be that way to make it work. Yeah. I guess I would say, but it is a fascinating process. Seems That's interesting that. to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Um, my friend Jay Sari, we've done a couple of podcasts and I knew Jay from my gripping days and he's in the union now, but he did his own independent, uh, feature called Sunset Park which I think you can see on Amazon. And uh, so we did a couple about those, and it is just all the stuff that has to come together. He shot it for $300,000, and um, man, you just have to like make every minute count. And I think it was the second to last day of filming, or third to last, someone stole the camera out of the director of photography's car, and it just like all this... All these things can happen that just you can't foresee and you can't plan for, but you just have to kind of plow through, you know? There's kind of a bit of a revolution going on with the independent side of things these days with films because obviously, um, you know, technology is, is, is becoming such as it is that you can literally um, uh, make, uh, create a pretty decent looking film just with your iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got YouTube as well where you can immediately upload it. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of. Yep. Change the whole ballgame. Yeah, the uh, the guy that I work with my on on this, uh, John Brancaccio, he um he does commercial shoots, and he said, you know, what used to take maybe eight people to do, now it's two. So it's um, it's been a little bit tough for well, like you used to have the camera department when you had film cameras. You uh, needed a focus puller, and you needed loaders who would literally just load the film into the magazines. They're under these little pup tents. It's a very specialized skill because you have to do everything without looking at it because you can't expose the film. So they would, on big shoots, you would have maybe five to ten loaders just loading film all day long. Now that's gone because there is no film. So, exactly, it's all digital. Yeah. I mean, it's um, like, very similar in my kind of line of work where we're very much encouraged these days. In fact, you can't 
you don't really want to get into journalism these days unless you're willing to be multi-skilled. Right. Um, though, you know, I, I do a lot of video editing, a lot of going out filming and video editing now, which, you know, five or so years ago, I didn't have anything to do with. There was a separate department that would have taken care of that and they would have had big PD50 cameras on their shoulders and that kind of thing. Whereas now I can pretty much do what they were doing um, with, with just my personal iPhone, you know, and, I, and it's in HD and I can edit it on the phone. Um, you know, I can, um, you know, uh, wire up a, a decent quality microphone. Um, you know, it's, it's just crazy. The, the whole ball game has changed and it's technology is affecting so many different industries. So um, how long have you been in the journalism business? Um, um, best part of 20 years, I should say. So uh, I, I get you were you were just getting to it or, or mentioning something about it. Uh, so it's maybe a little bit repetitious, but over the arc of that, what how would you say in the most significant way or ways your your job has changed or your duties have changed? Oh, it's been profound, really. I mean, and again, it's, it's a lot due to to technology um, and also, um, you know, the changing um, the, the way uh, media, uh, the, con- the consumption of media has changed again due to technology over the years. Um, so, you know, uh, I started uh, working at a local newspaper. I mean, the local the local newspaper industry now is, is certainly in the UK is kind of on its knees, really, because people aren't consuming. They're not going out and buying newspapers. Um, you know, that that's kind of out the window. They're going onto websites to read the news that they want. They want little bite sized chunks. They want a little bit of video. They want lots of pictures, that kind of thing. Um, and the, the younger people coming up just have no interest in going and buying newspapers. Um, and certainly um, where I'm from locally, the, the newspaper I used to work for, because it's been hit so hard, it's had to actually increase the price of its printed newspapers, which, you know, it's just a vicious circle. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, nobody wants to buy it in the first place, so they have to increase. To, yeah, yeah. It's, that, uh, that is yeah. absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, but also, they're obliged to put their news onto their website. So if people can read it on their website, what you know, they have no need to go and buy the newspaper. Right. And, and also, I remember the, the you know the, the the newspaper back in its heyday, just just around about the time I started working there. Um, you know, on a Thursday was uh, was the, the the day for uh, jobs and that kind of thing and uh, uh, properties and that kind of stuff. And the newspaper was like a big wedge, you know. It was, it was absolutely thick with all these um, these adverts in it, you know. This um, all this advert- advertising sure. material. Yeah. And and now now you know that, that was how they made all their bread and butter. That's how they made their money. And um, and again, people now for jobs or for if they want to buy a house or whatever, they will go straight online. So again, that's the other thing that's really affected local newspapers. So. You know, from that point of view, that's all changed. Um, in terms of, um, I, I'm a mainly a, a, an online journalist, a, a news online journalist. Um, and as I said, you know, kind of uh, talking about what we just did, I'm having to do a lot more video editing now um, and put on a lot more pictures and that kind of thing. Whereas before, it was it was pretty much text based. You'd have smaller pictures. Again, bandwidth has, has changed as well, which meant back in the day. People had dial-up or um, or very slow broadband, 
So we had to keep our pictures as, as low res and as small as possible. Now that's all changed because the technology is so much better. And, and broadband and bandwidth has increased so much that we can start putting all this video in. We start putting all these um, high resolution pictures in as well. And, um, and that's what people want. So it's, it's changed very much. It's become much more visual than, um, than um, sort of text-based. So, uh, so let, let's say like a, a story comes to your attention. Like what, what's your process for like going out and covering it, interviewing people, and then how do you incorporate like the, the video and like, how, I mean, cause I, I, I picture in my head the, you know, 30 years ago, someone hears about a story, they go out there, they go to town hall, they're interviewing the politician or whoever, the local resident, they're writing down what they say, they go back, they write up their stories, the photographer takes the picture, and there it is in the newspaper. I assume that's not the model anymore. Well, there's still an aspect to that. And also, you know, um, I don't necessarily do everything myself, even though uh, I am multi-skilled and I can do, you know, you, you draw on other parts of the organization that also might be covering the same story as you but for their particular media be it television or radio or or whatever do you know what i mean so okay. you can pull something from an interview that the tv guy's done or the radio guy's done rather than double up by then ringing that, that person or or being there with a microphone next to your tv colleague do you know what i mean that oh, kind okay of thing. okay um, but of course the medium is very different and the way something is presented for a television uh, report is different to something that's presented in a in an online news story. The other difference is, of course, that the online news story is pretty much going to remain there forever. You know, right. once a TV report has, has gone out, it's very seldom that would be looked back upon in years to come. Whereas, you know, uh, an online news story has that it goes on and has that life online. Do you know what I mean? Do you, so you have to take all those kind of things into consideration? Right. Right. Do, do you consider yourself more of a writer or a video editor or did you consider did you do more writing years ago and that's changed? I, I think if you if you ask me to pinpoint, you know, what is it that I do most of and what I think I'm best at and how I see myself? Yeah. Then I would say, yes, a, a, a journalist that writes. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. I also I think I'm an OK photographer and, um, you know, I've taken lots of you use that skill in my job um, a great deal um, and the video side of things the filming and the editing that's come on in the that's been sort of you know um, something that I've been asked to do more in the last couple of years um, and it's something that I find it very interesting I think it's probably a lot easier now to do than it would have been uh, maybe five or six years ago even with the technology as I said you can now do it on your phone very easily yeah yeah which is something it's a fairly new technology to be able to do it in a in such a way so you know so i would do all that as well you know and um i like like i said i think so you're expected to be multi-skilled in this day and age now within the, the media and the journalism field um, but if if pushed i would say yes my main my main thing is um i'm a writer so you will still find yourself going out to a certain location and photographing taking videos that that as you said that's also part of your job yeah, and I would go to court as well. I mean, that's quite a big part of the job. I'll go to court and um, sit in court and, you know, watch a trial, take notes, and then uh, I'll come out after the, the trial's ended, after the verdict's been given, 
and I may have to um, talk on the radio about what went down, um, immediately feedback to the office what the outcome has been because they may be you know, just waiting to break that news and I'm the, I'm the person there, I'm the trusted source who's in court. Um, for the lesser ones, then I'll, I'll, come, I'll come back to the office and then I will write up from my notes a story based on that, that trial. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, well, my uh, Paul and I's father was a lawyer, so um, I've always been very interested in, you know, kind of uh, not necessarily crime journalism, but law journalism, I guess you would say, legal journalism, however yeah, you mean, want to put it. Fraught, it's fraught with, you know, um, you know, worry and danger that, that, you know, you may you may have not said something, you may have not taken your notes down correctly, um, and you may have... Uh, got somebody's details wrong or that kind of thing so you have to really be on the ball and uh, have your head screwed on yeah also the thing is when you're in court you know a lot of it is kind of you know it's kind of tedious you know because there's a lot of stuff that gets talked about which is just minutiae that is you know really to to the story that you're trying to tell and also you know where in, in my job you know brevity is always you know drummed into us um you don't want to be writing thousands of words on something because people are just going to zone out you know they're only going to read so far so we have to try and keep our our stories very short and to the point you know who what why when and where um having all the the salient points of what the story is but um not waffling you know that kind of thing so that's also an art in itself in getting getting the whole story across with all the the stuff that should be in there still keeping it fairly short yeah it must be uh people's attention spans and i i teach 10th and 11th graders english which uh is like attention spans are becoming as, as i'm sure you know so short it's so hard to keep somebody's you know just get kids to read or get people to like actually sit down and read a story as you say they want visuals they want videos they want bullet points and move on to the next thing well we're very um you know a big big part of our job when we're writing our news stories is we have to make the top line as strong and as compelling as we possibly can to grab people to draw okay. them in to make them want to read the rest of it because yep. we've done all this kind of market research that says that people only read so far they scroll so far before they just you know go on to something else they have to be immediately invested by what they're reading otherwise yeah. they're just going to go away we need to keep them yeah um so it's all this kind of you know this kind of art to it really that um you know um we we try and specialize in really and um obviously in in journalism you know you have sub editors that you, you you basically you've done your you've done your draft you give it to them and they they'll, they'll often send it back to you and say no the, the top line's not strong enough and why have you gone in on that why don't you go in on this and what about this and what about that? Which also makes you a better journalist in yourself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's always yeah. very rewarding if um, you have a particular, you know, quite a serious story, like one of these court stories, for example, um, that you send it off to the sub to give it the final once over before he publishes it. And he's actually made hardly any changes because it's, it's all there on the page, you know? Yeah. So, so it's all those kind of things that maybe people when they think of a journalist, they may not necessarily realize the kind of stuff that goes into it. Do you know what I mean? It's not just receiving a press release and just kind of copy and pasting it and sticking it online. You know, it's, um, there's a real, there's a real skill and art to it, I think, which, 
you know, I think I think one is always learning and always um, trying to hone and improve. Well, it's it's funny because the uh, you know with the present uh, administration and president uh, news has become I don't even know what you would call it over here. Like it's not news anymore. Like it's all commentary. It's all editorial. Like Fox News, there's nothing new that they're telling you. It's just constant spin, spin, spin. And there, there's no, and what you hear from one source is absolutely contradictory and fake news has come into our lexicon. And some people really just you know, they, they do not believe that anything they see on TV or, or see on the Internet is really real. And it, it's it, it's utterly bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, you know, the you, you guys, your media over there has been massively polarized by the president. You know, um, yes. you've got you've, you obviously got people. Most of the media over there doesn't support him, but you've got the, the few that do. But um you know, he's he's come. He he brought this whole fake news to people's attention, and he's still he's still sort of uh, you know banding it around in most of his press conferences to this day. Um, you know, I think there's a kernel of uh, you know um, what he's saying is correct. You know, and there's a lot of unsubstantiated uh, stuff that gets put out. Um, and you know, I think obviously. You know, uh, accuracy is the watchword of any journalist, I think, you know, and um, any journalist worth his salt who has respect for himself and for the uh, industry that he's in, you know, should always, um, you know, have good sources, check the facts and make sure that um, that his stuff is as accurate as possible. But not everybody is, I don't know, not everybody holds themselves up to that standard, I suppose. Yeah, we don't really... Uh have facts in the media anymore one of his assistants uh or some this woman in his administration kellyanne conway very famously said well there are alternative facts and you know she was widely derided for saying that because it was sort of like the whole bowling green massacre thing as well what was that the whole bowling green massacre thing uh is that the reference she was making i kind of forget the story yeah, she 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 referenced um, a, a massacre when she was talking about some something to do with gun laws or something like that, which this massacre never actually occurred. You know, it's like right. Yeah, so, I mean, you you know, she's got her president there going on about fake news all the time, and you know, they're they're kind of perpetuating it more than anybody. You know. Yes. Yeah. It, it's very well. I mean, he called the media the enemy of the people, and um, yeah, to say it's polarized is well. Now now you have him calling into morning talk shows the president of the united states which i've never seen before well no i mean well there's this thing recently there's this thing when i was in america i spent six weeks in america when i met up with your brother last sort of between um february and uh, march and you know there's was obviously he was in the news every day with something new each time um one of the times it was about how unpresidential he is you know and it's, <laughs> yeah you know i mean it's kind of fascinating really that I mean, it's awful, but it's fascinating that you have this person in there that's kind of just got rid of all that red tape and all that kind of stateliness that you're expected to be a president. And like you say, he's ringing into, you know, a breakfast show. Yeah. And an off-the-cuff, you know, a long-winded interview. And it's, that's just one of the unpresidential things he does, you know? Well, they um, they had to eventually cut him off. I mean, exactly. it was just rambling too long. And those are his people. 
Uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's it's listening to these bizarre diatribes that are, are have no basis in fact, or they're just diatribes. Is really, yeah. And that, that's what passes for news. Yeah, well, I don't think that. The recent thing was that his... Um... His medical that he, you know, he trumpeted that he was, you know, he was incredibly healthy and astoundingly healthy for his age or whatever, you know. And obviously the the doctors now come out to say that he it was it was the president himself that wrote that and signed it, you know, rather yeah. than the doctor, you know. Yeah. It's just all this stuff. It just it's just kind of it's just utterly bizarre and surreal that you know you you went from a, a president like um, Obama who conducted himself with such. Uh, you know, with such stateliness and um, with intelligence and mm-hmm. and decorum and uh, respect. Um, and I remember when, you know, he was inaugurated, you know, uh, watching it over here um, and people were in tears and you really thought, oh, this is, a, you know, going to be a whole new dawn for America, finally. <laughs> yeah. You know, just, eight, just eight years later. You know, I know. I know. You know people, are probably, people are probably saying, bring back W, you know. George W. Bush sounds like Abraham Lincoln these days compared to, I mean, they literally replay his speeches. And it, it was not just Donald Trump. It was Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, all the other people running. And they had Marco Rubio saying, I, I'm pretty sure it was him, saying that um, Islam is a terrorist religion, that this is a battle of civilizations. They cut back to George W. Bush saying Islam is a religion of peace and this is not a war of civilizations. And it's like, wow. Like when George W. Bush was president, you know, most people of my political bent were like, Jesus, this is terrible. I would kill to have George W. Bush <laughs> back in the White House. It's kind of crazy, isn't it, to, to think that, um, you know, that you would find yourself one day saying that, you know. Well, I guess you guys, I... I, I you know, I don't know much about British politics. I know there was a big kerfuffle with the, I want to call her the immigration secretary. I know you guys don't call her that, but something about, like, I, she had to resign. Is that right? Uh, the home secretary. The home secretary. It was over an yeah, immigration she basically, issue. She basically, Amber Rudd, she basically got her facts wrong. Um, she, you know, it was a very, it was, from what little I, I, I know about it, because I was away at the time as well. Uh, so I was out of the country, so I wasn't really following it. But from what little I know about it, she was kind of questioned about um, about some immigration statistics and some records, and she kind of fluffed it um, and said, "Oh, um, there aren't any records or something like that." Um, and it was it was incorrect, um, and she was kind of hauled over the coals for it. Um, the, then there then became this, this big scandal about this. Uh, about these uh, people that were who came over from the West Indies in in like the fifties, and they've lived here ever since. But it's since been found out that their their records were lost, or they weren't up together, or whatever. Um, and there was they were they were sent letters to say that they're not British citizens and they need to leave. All this kind of stuff. I'm I'm kind of you know generalising. Mm-hmm. I don't know the full ins and outs of it because I was out of the country at the time. But anyway, this this all happened. She got a lot of heat for it, and as they generally have to do in these circumstances they have to resign or they have to they, you know they have to be fired so that's basically what happened not not in this administration if you get your facts wrong you're fine you're all you're all good well, <laughs> again look at um trump i mean he's done he's done probably about 575 things that really should have had him thrown out but um he just he just he's like a limpet he, he cannot be removed i think uh 
the New York Post, uh, no, uh, the um, Washington Post and the New York Times keeps track of his lies, and he just passed his 3,000th maybe uh, a week ago. And the joke was that he was going to say, no, it was actually 5,000 just to make himself look <laughs> look better. And even with his health thing, like he's like, I am the healthiest person ever to take the office of president. Like, why? I don't understand this hyperbole. Like, just say I'm in good health. And like, obviously you're not. You're overweight and you eat yeah. McDonald's and Wendy's. Like, but everything is the biggest, it's the best, it's the most amazing thing you've ever seen, or it's the well, worst. He's a blowhard, isn't he? He's a blowhard, and, and you know, he's he's somebody that's, you know, had a lot of wealth and success in his life. He's highly arrogant. Yes. Um, you know, he's always had minions and yes men running around after him. Yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. Yep. That's just the kind of person he is, unfortunately. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, well, the, uh, his... Um, Chief of Staff, uh, John Kelly, it was, <laughs> the story is that he called him an idiot, or said he was an idiot. He didn't call him an idiot, and he didn't know anything about DACA. And then there was Rex Tillerson, who referred to him as an effing moron, and he really didn't deny that. He just said, well, I think the story's been overblown, and it was sort of like, I mean, you know, I'm not saying I, I agree with these people politically, but they're obviously, you know, pretty intelligent and successful, and have a very hard time dealing with him, you know? Yeah, well, I think most Americans do. Well, and, you know, I think it's funny because he's an older man, but he really, it's almost like he's a product of the internet age, like completely can't focus on anything. He just sort of takes in one or two items and, and formulates this grandiose idea and then forgets about it two days later. It's just really bizarre. It's bizarre. It's like dealing with a 12-year-old with ADD. I mean, it's just, yeah. you know. <laughs> well, yeah, he's uh, a very petty man. Yes, and combine that with pettiness and cravenness and uh, being a psychopath, and <laughs> you have our president. Uh, well, this is great, Daniel. Uh, I didn't even have to use the list. Um, sometimes I dive back into that when things uh, get a little slow. This is a very interesting conversation. Oh, good. And if you want me to to do, do another chat sometime then by all means let me know oh i'd love to do this again okay okay so that was uh my chat with uh daniel and uh very interesting things to say about his industry with journalism and some changes in that many changes in that industry so thanks a lot daniel thanks matt all right i'll talk to you soon yes bye all right bye bye